Isaiah 49, beginning with verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Luke 24, starting with verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Well, tonight we have this world uh, focus, and I want to bring to you the knowledge and understanding the commitment, the conviction of world mission. Some years ago, I came across a wonderful missionary lady who's now in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ called Helen Rosevy. And she said, if you have emotional appeals about missionary work, you wind up with emotional missionaries on the mission field and they are no use to anybody. So let's not work on the emotions of it. 
Let's come to an understanding that our commitment, our conviction might be built on the basis of a genuine understanding of the place of the worldwide mission in the plans and purposes of God. And as a church like St Ebbs has and is committed and continuing to be committed to this worldwide mission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to ask, what about you? As a congregation, manifestly we are, as we heard our long list of missionaries being prayed for, this congregation, this church is committed to it, but what about the individuals in this church? What about you, your understanding, your commitment to this aspect that this, of the church's true commitment? It's not simply that there is a, an 11th commandment for Christians, you know, the normal 10 plus, you must evangelise, or a 12th one, you must evangelise overseas. Rather, world mission is inherent in the work of Jesus. It's integral to the whole work and plan of God. It's intrinsic to the very way of salvation. It's innate in every true believer of the gospel. If you're unconcerned about the lost, it's because you most likely are the lost. For if you're saved, you'll be concerned about the lost. It's indispensable to the fulfilment of the Old Testament that the world hears the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me show you the centrality of world mission by looking at a verse in the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 because I'm going to explain to you a great mystery. Uh, it's not great because it's mysterious, but it's great because of the truth that it contains. And it's amazing how many people don't know this mystery. Astonishing how it seems to be kept from their eyes. They just don't get it. They see, but they do not see. It's found in 1 Timothy 3.16 where it's called the mystery of godliness. Our translators are trying to help her understand it by translating it as the mystery from which true godliness, uh, sorry, the springs. But the phrase is actually simply in the Greek, the mystery of godliness. Uh, not the mystery of goodliness, but the mystery of godliness. There's only one O in godly. Because the opposite of godly, what is it? What is the opposite of godly? Just tell the neighbour, tell the person next to you what the opposite of godly. Quick, one word. What is the one word opposite of godly? Most people, I only wanted one word. You don't have a conversation, you know. You can, you can organise your dating later. No, no, it's just one word. For most people, ungodly. That's not the opposite to godly. The opposite of godly is godless. Because the essence of godly is the god bit. It's the God bit that matters. And we've turned godly into goodly. This is not the mystery of being good, the mystery of goodliness. This is the mystery of godliness that is being explained here. Uh, the, the mystery of God and our relationship to him. It's there in the rest of the verse. 
He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Now, that doesn't sound all that mysterious when you hear it, does it? But then again, that's the problem with this mystery. Until you see what it's saying, it remains a mystery to you. But once you understand it, it becomes something great beyond all question, as he calls it at the beginning of verse 16. See, the mystery. Uh, first, let me ask you, when is a mystery not a mystery? Well, the answer is when it's been solved. And it's no longer a mystery, is it? The New Testament uses this word mystery. It doesn't mean mysterious or difficult to understand, beyond explanation or enigmatic. The New Testament uses it in much the simpler concept of a secret. That's the kind of concept of mystery. Something hidden but now made clear. Something people couldn't guess but once they've been told, they know about it. I've got a secret. Actually, like all of us, I've got lots of secrets. But here's my secret for you tonight. You don't know what's in my right-hand pocket. It's a mystery to you. It's a secret to you. It's not very mysterious. And there's a good chance you could guess, a good chance you could guess that's right, but you don't know from guessing that it is right or not. It's not until I actually pull it out of my pocket and show you that you will know or I tell you and you believe me. But then you would know. And once I've brought it out and shown to you, it's not a secret at all, isn't it? I mean, in my right-hand pocket are uh, the keys for a place down in London I'm staying at and uh, strepsils. <laughs> Preacher's delight. And actually another little tube that I'm now going to place in my mouth so as to keep my voice working. That was in my... Now you know. My secret is revealed. Now the mystery is no longer a mystery. You came into church thinking to yourself, wonder what's in his right-hand pocket. <laughs> not. You see, it wasn't a great mystery, was it? My secret, frankly, is not very great at all. It's not great because... Well, you could easily guess it. It's not great because, frankly, I'm unimportant... And frankly, who cares what's in my pocket? What does it matter that I have those things? That really is unimportant. But God's mystery, <laughs> he's important. His mystery is very great. Not because it is so mysterious and strange. That's not the, the greatness is not in the mysterious nature of it. Rather, it's the secret to godliness. And it's very strange. It's very unexpected. It is quite different to what the uninitiated would ever guess. God's mystery is very great because God is so important. Godliness is so important. And his way to godliness affects every aspect of your life. So tonight I'm going to share with you God's great secret of godliness. And there are six clues to the secret. And these days we, we're used to giving numbers for things, aren't we? You know, so that we might have a better life. Uh, ten steps to lose weight. Nine ways to entertain the in-laws. Uh, eight, law, eight ways of fashion disasters to avoid. Uh, seven ways of cleaning the kitchen. Well, I'm going to give you the six clues to godliness. 
The six clues to the great secret of godliness. Six great truths that when you understand them and they control your life, you will find the godliness that God himself has provided for you. Here they are in the Bible verse right in front of us. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Now, do you see why it's called a mystery? A secret kept from people and not understood by outsiders? It's simply not what people expect. Maybe it's not what you expected. See, there are no rules to keep to be godly. There are no steps to follow. There are no habits to form. There are no activities to be engaged in. There are no clubs to join. There's no fees to pay. There's no key performance indicators to achieve. All the things of this world and how you would become godly, none. It's not even there. It's a secret for most people because we have completely wrong understanding about what godliness involves. The Greek word for godliness is that of religion. It's the respect you give to your God. It can be translated piety or or devotion or reverence. Because Christian religion involves morality rather than ritual, service rather than worship, obedience rather than sacrifice, we tend to make our religion horizontal rather than vertical. We tend to make it like that, turning religion then into morality and God's righteousness into social justice and God's generosity into charitable trusts. And so that's why we put the extra O into godliness and think that godliness is goodliness, a kind of religious morality. It's a very godly thing to do, by which we mean that's a good thing to do. No, if it's godly, it's got to do with God, not just being good. It's different, you see. Thinking godliness as goodliness, a kind of religious morality, leaves us then having to do things and leaves God out of godliness. And worse still, puts ourselves in the centre of the frame, the centre of the picture, rather than God being the centre of godliness. Godliness is not about what we do, but about what God has done. The secret that God has done that we actually couldn't do. We have a vertical dimension, but the vertical dimension is not what we do for God, It's what God has done for us. It's the exact reverse, you see. They're not six steps to make myself more godly. It's not about being good. It's not about what I do or have to do. It's about God and our relationship with him. It's about God and what he has already done to restore and establish that relationship with him. So listen again to the six clues to godliness. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. I know you don't believe this because you have iPhones, but repetition is good for the soul. 
Let's think about them one at a time to understand God's great mystery of godliness. The first clue is he appeared in the flesh. Christianity is not about an idea or a philosophy or an experience, but about a person, an historical person, someone who was seen, touched, heard, witnessed. Uh, sometimes teenagers ask us that very painful, silly question about, you know, I'll believe in God if you can show me God, as if they would believe it. Only they could see God for themselves, then their, their own eyes, then they would believe. Well, there are two important answers to their request. Firstly is to say, if you're in the right place at the right time, you would have seen him. You could have seen him. It was Palestine in the first century. That's where he appeared. You just turned up a little late. And in the wrong country. And in the wrong continent. Secondly, to tell them that seeing is not believing anyway. For many saw him and did not believe in him because they didn't know what they were looking at and they weren't expecting God to become a man and appear as a flesh in flesh as a carpenter from Galilee. The great secret that people were not expecting is that God became man in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So when he became man, most people didn't recognise him as God because they weren't expecting to appear as a man and also because they didn't know what kind of man would be God if God became man he looked like any other man nothing special about his appearance he did extraordinary things he spoke in extraordinary ways but he was just like any other man those strange things happened at the time of his death he died and others were crucified they died giving up his spirit being buried in a grave but God appeared in the flesh when he rose from the dead leaving behind an empty tomb and repeatedly appearing to his disciples up to 500 at one time he wasn't a ghost or a spirit but the same man who was crucified just a couple of days beforehand he sat down and ate fish with them to show that he was a body he was appeared in the flesh he met his disciples and ate with them when doubting Thomas finally saw him, saw the holes in his hands and, the, and his feet and his side, he fell down before him and said, my Lord and my God. But even then, even then, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you would not have believed if you saw someone rise from the dead. For you wouldn't know what a resurrection meant. And because cynicism knows no limits, it has no knowledge. The thorough cynic can doubt all things and all people. Even he can doubt himself. And so the thoroughgoing cynic, the person who will never believe, will never believe because that such a person will never know anything. You cannot know by cynicism. And you cannot have friends by cynicism. It's not possible. The person who doubts everything and everybody knows nothing and has no friends. So the first clue to God's great mystery is that he appeared in the flesh. The second, but that first one by Amazing, is the most dangerous idea. It's the most dangerous idea that's ever been told that Jesus rose from the dead. Because once you grasp that, nothing is ever the same again. But the second great clue is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. 
This is what Pentecost is all about. It's not about speaking in tongues, that totally misses the point. But it's about the risen Lord Jesus pouring his spirit out upon people, testifying to all Israel that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus had promised the coming of the Spirit, so the arrival of the Holy Spirit vindicated his claims to be the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. But Jesus pouring out of the Spirit on his people, he demonstrated that he was indeed the Lord who sat at God's right hand ruling the universe. Keep your fingers in in 1 Timothy 3 because we're going to come back to it. But flip back to Romans 1. Romans 1. For there we read about the gospel of God in the opening verse. And notice what the gospel of God is in verse 2. Romans 1 verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. By his resurrection, he ascended to sit at the right hand of God in all power and authority, and you know that by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from heaven upon humanity, upon his disciples. For Jesus had told his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, that he would be sending his spirit to them, to teach them, to remind them, to guide them into all the truth about him. And not only to do that for them, but also to witness to the world and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment, to convict the world of the truth that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the coming of the Holy Spirit is the vindication that Jesus is the Christ who has appeared in the flesh. The third clue is that he was seen by angels. That is, Christianity is based in human history. But it's not only about human history of a secular nature, it's also about the supernatural world and the intersection between both the natural and the supernatural worlds. Angels are part of reality whether or not we've ever seen them or met them. In fact, we're told that we can entertain them unawares, which means they don't all dress up in long white gowns with wings and with halos, because I reckon if one of them turned up in my door, I think I'd notice. I think I would be aware. hope I would. The New Testament teaches that angels long to know what the prophets were talking about when they foretold the coming of the Christ in his sufferings and his glories, but it wasn't for them to know. At his birth, the angels declared the coming of the Christ. After his temptation, the angels ministered to him. But with the resurrection, they saw what it was all about. They were the first to see and to bear witness to the empty tomb and the risen Christ. And in his exaltation, he sits at God's right hand, surrounded by the angels of heaven, who now do his bidding for us. The fourth clue to godliness is that he was proclaimed among the nations. Yeah, that's right. Do you see it? Who would have guessed it? 
the very centre of godliness. This is what it's all about. It's about Jesus, yes, yes. It's about the Holy Spirit, yes, yes. It's about angels, oh, a bit strange, but okay, yes. But it's also about proclaimed among the nations. The mystery of godliness involves world mission. Hello, do you remember why we're here tonight? See, we're heirs of 2,000 years of a world religion and we take it for granted now that the Messiah was not for the Jews only, but for the whole world. It was in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, of the man who was God, that the religion of the chosen nation Israel became the religion of all the world. God didn't come into the world to save Israel from Romans, but to save sinners from death and judgment, to save people such as you and such as me. There is only one God who made all peoples and all nations. And there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many, for all people. I'm quoting 1 Timothy 2 in case you didn't remember it. Just go back a page there and you'll see it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. But this is the bit of the memory verse most people don't remember. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. How do you know that God, our Saviour, wants all people to be saved? Verse 4. Because there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man and that one mediator has given his life as a ransom for all and that ransom for all is now preached to all nations. And the apostle has even been appointed especially for the Gentiles. So now, Paul told the Corinthians... Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. This is the proper time for the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Before Jesus came, it wasn't the proper time. But since Jesus' death and resurrection, now, open season. Now is the time for it to happen. In the death and resurrection of God, the amnesty has been declared. The amnesty that we've needed all along you know about amnesties they're very important library amnesties are wonderful gives you that chance to get that book back whose fines now are worth three or four times the amount of the book and you just slip it in and you don't have to explain why it's been sitting in your library for so long we had a terrible massacre down in australia called port arthur where 30 or so people were killed you know man went ballistic with guns and our prime minister of the day declared an amnesty on guns. Anybody, anywhere could bring their guns into the local police station, no question asked, they were just received. They didn't say to you, why have you got 34 AK-47s? Where did you get that bazooka from? Why do you have machine guns? No questions asked. Just bring the guns back. Amnesties have an end to them. <laughs> After two months, new laws came in which meant owning guns were much worse much greater crime than ever been before. But for a couple of months, it's amnesty. God has declared an amnesty to humanity by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sins are now forgivable. 
Come now, repent now. You can be forgiven. Now is the time of the amnesty. The one man has given his life as a ransom for all. Now is the moment for this gospel to be preached. This proclamation of the nations, this is, well, this leads to the fifth of God's mystery of godliness, the fifth clue. Namely, he was believed on in the world. All around the world, millions upon millions of people have come to trust that first century Jew called Jesus. They've given their lives and found forgiveness in him, entrusting their eternity to him. Today, more people trust this man than any other man that has ever been alive or ever died or ever risen from the grave. Today, he is the person that the world trusts. More people in history trust him as their Lord and Saviour than any other person who has been lived. Here is the first universal religion. Up until then, religions were national things. The God of the Moabites, the God of the Canaanites, the God of the Romans, the gods of the Greeks. It was all very nationalistic. It was tribal. But this is one God over all humanity and one man who is the one mediator between God and all humanity, who has given his life as a ransom for all. And so now we have something radically new in the ancient world. We have a universal religion. But you don't have a universal religion unless it's proclaimed to all and believed on in this world. This was God's secret plan. For in this one universal religion, this first missionary religion, the invitation to every man, woman and child to come into relationship with the true and living God and creator of all, breaking down all racist, racial, ethnic, cultural or, or, or national divisions and hostilities between people. You walk into this door, into this building in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't care where you come from, how rich you are, how poor you are, how intelligent you are, how stupid you are, it's an irrelevance. We don't care your ethnicity. We don't care your age. We don't care because none of those things matter if you are in Christ Jesus. That is all that matters. This is a unifying of humanity under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. World mission is not an optional extra for the super spiritual, but central to the fulfilment of the plans of God for Christ, the plans of God for the world, the plans of God for humanity, the plans of God for you. This was always God's plans, which takes us then to the sixth and final clue. He was taken up in glory. For though Jesus was crucified in worldly shame and ignominy, he rose in glory and honour and has ascended to sit at God's right hand in all majesty and power and glory. For he now sits at God's right hand in that glory and honour and power with all his enemies being placed under his feet. And gathered around the throne are all the creatures of the universe. And all the kings laying down their, their crowns before him and thousands upon thousands of people from every tribe and every nation and every people of the world and we're all singing, you, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you are slain. And with your blood you purchased for God 
persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Just as we're singing this incredible song to him, we're joined by thousands upon thousands of angels of heaven who are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. For there's nobody else in heaven or on earth to whom you would want to give all honour and power and glory and authority. So there's nobody else in heaven and earth that you could trust with all honour and power and authority. I mean, that's why in this world we have democracy, so as to make sure that those who are ruling over us can't do anything. It's very simple, that's what it's about. In Australia, it's especially true. We're an equal opportunity country, Australia. Everybody has the opportunity to be Prime Minister. We change them regularly so that we get to roll them over a couple of weeks' time and so everybody has the opportunity because we don't want anybody to rule our country. You see, following Lord Acton, humans foolishly think that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolute. That's not true. Power does not corrupt. It simply allows the corrupt to exercise their corruption. They're corrupt before they get the power. That's the problem. It's not power that corrupts, it's sin that is corruption. And we don't trust anybody with power because we know everybody is sinful. We only have to look in the mirror to understand the universality of sin. That's why we don't trust anybody with power. No man with power and glory and honour. But we trust Jesus. We trust and want Jesus, the one who died for us. You can trust a man who dies for you and who rose again in righteousness, sit at God's right hand, vindicated by the Spirit, proclaimed and believed on the world. We trust him with all power and all glory and all honour, for he is not corrupt. He has overcome corruption. So this evening we see the secret of religion in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, is God's explanation of his mystery, his secret, his secret of religion, of piety, of godliness. It's not what people expect, but it's what it is. There, he appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is godliness God's way. It's not about being good and getting better. It's about the supernatural invasion into the natural world. It's about Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's about redemption and salvation and forgiveness and rebirth. It's about the world's mission, reaching to the ends of the earth in the name and for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the heart of that secret of religion is world mission. Not an optional extra, not a kind of extracurricular activity. It's at the very heart of it. Sadly for many Australian, 
it's still a mystery. Although God explained it 2,000 years ago, it's still a mystery to people for they still think that the way to be godly is to be moral and good and goodly. And I presume that's true of the English as well. I know it's true of the Australians. Excuse my presumption, but I think it's true of you as well. For your cultural morality confuses you into thinking that somehow you could possibly be good enough for God. What an appalling arrogance. When God's way to godliness is to send his son to die for us and rise again for our forgiveness, for our eternity, and proclaim it to the ends of the earth, pouring out his spirit to bring us new birth and enter into his kingdom. So just as I don't know English people, English language I know, spoken with a proper accent, because I don't know English people as thoroughly as I might know Australians, and because I don't know you because most of you weren't in this church last time I was in this church, I don't exactly know who's here tonight, so let me say there are two kinds of people here tonight. There are those of you who don't yet know this godliness because you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And there are those of you who do know this godliness because you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour because you know he is the Lord and Saviour of all the world. So I've got a little message for both of you. Let me give you the second one first. That is for those of you who know Jesus Christ as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Saviour of the world. What are you doing sitting here? When are you going to leave? Where are you going to go? How are you going to spend your lifetime making Jesus known? You may stay and make him known in England. Europe beckons with millions who do not know him. Africa beckons with millions who do not know him. Asia beckons with millions who do not know him. With no opportunity of hearing him unless somebody goes to tell them. When are you going? What are you going with? How are you going? Who's going to, what training are you going to get? How are you going to get there? The default position is going into the world for the rest of your lifetime, wherever you are, making Jesus known. That's the default position. Because wherever you go, whenever you go, for the rest of your lives, until that last breath that is given to you, to say, behold, behold the Lamb. A wonderful hymn we just sang, wasn't it? Marvellous. Right to my dying days to proclaim him wherever I am. So those who are given much, much will be required. You can't be given much more than we have, can you? But to those of you who don't know yet Jesus as that Lord and Saviour, can I encourage you either to find out about him by asking your Christian friends? Because if what I'm saying is true, your eternal destination hangs upon it. And your life and your meaning and your purpose and your existence hang upon it. If what I'm saying is false, we are the most to be pitied because we're giving our life for a figment of imagination. 
but I know it's true. That's why I'd encourage you to ask and find out. And if you do find out, and you know it's true, and of course many people know it's true, then what do you do about it? The answer is you pray. You, you acknowledge to God your need for forgiveness, and you ask God to forgive you. It's very simple, really, isn't it? You acknowledge that you need forgiveness because you've been ignoring God and not having God running your life. You've been running your own life your own way. And so you thank God for sending Jesus to die for you that you might be forgiven and rise again, that you might live a new life. And so then on the basis of knowing that you need forgiveness and knowing Jesus has died for your forgiveness, you ask him for that forgiveness. Please forgive me. I'm going to finish by closing in prayer and I'm going to pray for that group who do not know him. I'm going to pray the kind of prayer you need to pray just to help you understand what you need to ask and possibly lead you in that prayer right now. Let's pray. If you want to, pray it along in the quietness of your own mind to God. As I pray, I'll pray slowly enough for you to pray it with me to him. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my Lord. Amen. And you see, if that is your prayer, you will be forgiven. I know you'll be forgiven because Jesus has died to bring you forgiveness. And if it is your prayer, you'll be changed. I know you'll be changed because he now has risen and sits at the right hand of God in all power and authority and changes people. But if it is your prayer, and if it's your prayer for the first time, then talk to a Christian about it. All you need to say, because you don't know what to say, I understand, that's kind of semi-embarrassing, etc. You just say to them, I, I prayed that prayer, can you help me? That's all you need to say. And if you haven't got any Christian friends you can know, then talk to one of the staff here at the church or one of those who are with lanyards around their necks. Just say, I prayed that prayer, can you help me? But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then somewhere along the line, when you're here in this place, you need to go and talk to the staff members about what you're going to do with the rest of your life and how you are going to spend your life proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations of this world. May God bless you in all. Amen.